0: morning, friends. It's good to have you all here. Even though I suspect some of you were supposed to be in the first service, but it was like what minus two degrees at that point in, of the day, so I uh, I appreciate your wisdom. Um, but it is good to be back with you again. I had a few people mention to me after the first service that uh, if my voice didn't hold out, we could just turn on the video and I could lip sync. Um, or uh, just let it play. Um, So I've had all sorts of encouragement from people of the church this morning. Uh, But uh, I am thankful to be here in person and uh, um, speak to you concerning the things of God that means so much to us. I want to begin um, our time in the Word this morning, Colossians chapter 1, by reading a verse from Hosea, the Old Testament prophet Hosea, chapter 4, verse 6. He says this, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The thing that was concerning Hosea and, of course, the Lord uh, was that lacking knowledge of God particularly is something that destroys. Some translations say... uh, For lack of knowledge, my people perish. And so we have this throughout scriptures, an idea of the importance of knowing God. And this requires information, right? It's it's an important thing to almost every biblical author, and of course to God, that we have a Thorough knowledge of God. Paul here prayed in verse 9 of Colossians 1 that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God. And so knowing God is an important thing. Peter also prayed or commanded that we be filled with the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow, he's saying to Christians, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus And so as we come to faith, whenever we do come to faith, is it okay to continue in spiritual ignorance? Is it okay to to say to yourself or to others, well, I I just don't have much of an interest in knowing God. It's enough for me to know that Jesus saved me from my sins and I'm on my way to heaven. Praise him. Is that okay? Um, Is it okay just at some point in the past to... Come to Jesus and then have not have it, really have an interest in growing in your knowledge of God or his word. And so this morning, I want you to think about this. Do you have a desire to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, in the knowledge of God? Um, you remember the last time I preached to you, I preached on one of the passages I brought up was Matthew 11, verse 12, where Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence. Remember that? And how important it is that uh, we view it that way. In order to to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to require an effort equal to violence. To be filled with the knowledge of God is going to require you some intensity of thought and discipline uh, that would be equal to What Jesus said was violence. And so how is that going for you? Sun Valley Church Christian, Sun Valley Church attender. As your pastor, this must be my primary concern, to deliver to you the knowledge of God. If all is said and done, and and we make it to heaven, and your report of my ministry is, Oh, he was a funny guy. (laughs) What are we doing here? So... It is my primary concern to deliver to you the knowledge of God and regularly ask you to examine yourself to see if you can see evidence of such in your life. Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? What evidence would you provide of those things? Do you see Christ in you? Can you see a growing passion, uh, a commitment to his agenda? Scripture is filled with statements about evidences of spiritual life, right? Uh, Paul himself said, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. And then all of these things in Scripture that we come across that help us examine ourselves. J.C. Ryle uh, said in a short but very excellent book, The True Christian, he said this, he who leaves his Bible unread clearly does not wish to be born again. I know that some of these Puritan type guys can, you know, say things pretty uh, in such a way that, you know, scare you. Uh, but who's going to argue with them? They're filled with Scripture. So, in the same book that I would recommend that you get and read by Ryle, the true Christian, he gives eight evidences of authentic faith. Eight evidences of thought authentic faith. I'm going to give you four. To maybe whet your appetite to go out and get the book and read it. All right? So here's four of the eight evidences of authentic faith according to J.C. Ryle. The pursuit of holiness. If, in fact, the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, converted you, moved you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, is holiness an interest to you? Ryle thinks it ought to be. Next, spiritual mindedness. This is not something Ryle thought up. Holy Spirit seems to be interested in that thing. He says in Colossians 3 through the Apostle Paul's pen, if you've been raised with Christ, if you claim Christ, seek the things above, set your mind on things above. Spiritual mindedness is an evidence of authentic faith. Thirdly, humility, of course, is... Evidence, we cannot come to the kingdom of God, come into the kingdom of God rather. We cannot embrace Jesus Christ unless we see our need, and that requires humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said in Matthew 5. That's a description of humility. And then finally, not finally, but the fourth uh, evidence that Ryle brings up says, a delight in the means of grace. What is a means of grace? The means of grace is how God distributes his grace to his people, to us, his people. How does he do that? Through the word, through the preaching of the word, through the reading of the word, through prayer, through fellowship, etc. Those are the means of grace. Ryle is saying, if you have an authentic faith, you will delight in those things. Do you, Christian, delight in the means of grace? So... As we now enter our text in Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to be focusing on verse 14. We had it read through verse 23, I believe. But we're going to focus on verse 14, which says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And for fear that you think I'm going to be expanding on two words For an entire sermon, let me give you some peace of mind by letting you know that these two words are primary to your faith and have expanded on in volumes throughout Christian history. So the 40-minute sermon is literally nothing to be talking about redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The first step to being filled with the knowledge of God, which is Paul's prayer in verse 9, is what? To be in Christ, right? To be filled with Christ. If you, Paul said in verse 1 of chapter 3, if you've been raised with Christ, and then so forth. So we could say, as Paul would, if you want to be filled with the knowledge of God, the first step is to be in Christ, Be in Christ. If you are in Christ, then the pursuit of a deeper understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ will, in fact, be a driving passion of your life. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who converts the soul, the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies the Christian. And so, if that is, in fact, true of you, you will begin to see a deeper desire for a growing understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ in you. This is why Paul, after praying that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God and his will, right after that, look at your passage, in verse 15, he moves into an exposition of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He prays that they'll be filled with the knowledge of God, and he thinks to himself, where do I start? Oh, I'll tell you, with Christ. Now he goes Christ is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him things were created, things in heaven, earth, and so on and so forth. He lays out such uh, lofty thoughts of Christ, you can hardly keep up. In verses 15 through 20, Sun Valley Church, if the year 2024 is going to be marked by a life that is, in fact, fully pleasing to God, That is, in fact, bearing fruit in everything we do, um, and is, in fact, what he says there uh, in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. If that's the kind of year we want, then we must say that the first stop is a deeper understanding of Jesus Christ himself, okay? That's what Paul thinks, and I'm in agreement with him. So... Our passage today, as I said, is going to be a microscope on verse 14, where Paul has noted that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. So, the first thing that you must know about Jesus is that he is the one who is behind your redemption, he is the one who is the reason you are forgiven. So let's take these two, redemption and forgiveness, and unpack them for a moment. First of all, starting with forgiveness of sins. The nature of forgiveness of sins. In verse 13, Paul mentioned that the Father, remember we have a trinity we're dealing with, Father, Son, and Spirit. He says in verse 13 that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that is, he's delivered us from the authority of, the rule of, the power of, darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his son Jesus Christ. Then in verse 14 Paul adds those amazing words we're focusing on. In whom, that is Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's go with this. What is sin? And why does it need forgiving? What is sin and why does it need forgetting, forgiving rather. So we have uh, people trying to minimize the, the severity of sin by calling lies white lies, uh, by calling adultery an affair. Things like this are common to us, and they're so common, we don't, it doesn't even phase us anymore. But why is sin what it is, and why does it require forgiveness from our Creator? <clears throat> well, some of you may think, well, this is somewhat elementary, fundamental things. Do we really need to go back to that stage of uh, Christian knowledge? Um, Why can't we move forward? I'm gonna explain to you why we're gonna remain on these things here this morning by telling you this story about Vince Lombardi. In 1961, Vince Lombardi uh, began the first day of training camp for the Green Bay Packers, as some of you might know who had just lost the championship game in the prior season by holding up a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. These are two professional football players. Gentlemen, this is a football. Then he proceeded to hand out a folder or a binder full of all the fundamental skills that every position on a football team would be required to accomplish. And I'm thinking that, well, some of you today might be thinking that today's sermon Uh, for such seasoned saints as yourself, is a little bit mundane, a little bit elementary. But I want to suggest that there's more to these fundamentals of the faith, redemption and forgiveness, than first meets the eye. And can we really unpack these two amazing gospel truths in 30 minutes? Or have you ever had it sufficiently unpacked so that it doesn't need to be repeated? you remember what the Apostle Peter said to the recipients of his second letter? I've always enjoyed this. He says, I know you've heard this before, but for your edification, I'm gonna say it again. And then he continues to write his second epistle. And so I'm kind of taking that tact with you. You may have been through everything you need to be through to understand redemption and the forgiveness of sins, but in case not, let me repeat it to you again. All right? So <clears throat> sin, beginning with that, is any violation of the law of God. You knew that, right? That was the first thing off your tongue. Sin is any violation of God's law. And we say these things because this is what the Bible says. First John chapter 3, verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And here we go. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is a violation of God's law. Sins are, of course, uh, in two categories. Sins of commission. That's the thing, that's kind of how we think about sin, naturally. Something I've done that I shouldn't have. That's a sin of commission. Um, Like, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. That was bad. So that's kind of how we think of sin. But there's also... The next half of sin, which is called the sin of omission, sin of commission we're familiar with, things I shouldn't have done. Sins of omission are just as weighty in God's eyes, but are things that were left undone. So God says in his word, he commands us to love one another. If you have not sufficiently loved your neighbor, you're in sin. God says to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. If you have not rejoiced in all things, given thanks in all things, prayed for one another at all times, encouraged one another, if you have neglected to do something, that's called a sin of omission. So we have sins of commission which are plain to us, but the sins of omission take some reminders, which I just did. So we are constantly struggling with sin in our lives. It's a violation of God's law. Now, where does this law come from? Of course, it comes from God. It's God's law. God's the lawgiver. We, our mind goes immediately to Mount Sinai. He gave the law to Moses. And the reason he did so, the reason he can make rules, is because he's God, right? It's, it's his universe. He can make rules if he wants to because he's built the place. His law come, of course, with consequences for transgressing or breaking them. (coughs) God has always given laws (coughs) uh, to human beings with expectations of us. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, for for example, he told Adam and Eve to not eat of this particular tree. Right? And that was God's law. He could do that because of his garden. He made it and so he said you cannot eat of that tree. Their failure to obey that law was sin and it came with penalties, as does every sin that breaks God's laws. Why do we have to obey God's laws? It's a fair question. Aren't we independent? Aren't we the master of our own universe? Well, not exactly. Um, We are obliged to obey God's laws because we are his creatures and he has provided all the benefits he has for our sustenance. Everything that makes you an individual is a gift from him, including the last breath you just took, your heartbeat that just beat, your food, your abilities to to have employment, etc. and so on throughout the entire point of your existence. Hence, we are obligated to the one who's given us all these things to obey his laws as he expects. So when we don't do that, it's called sin because it is a placing of our will above his. We think, well, you know what? My will is to give that person a piece of my mind for what they did to me. And so here you go. Uh, that's against God's law, and so that would be a sin, a breach of God's law, deserving of punishment. And this brings us to the idea of fault. Fault brings on guilt. So when you sin, it brings on a deserved punishment. Fault and guilt are connected. We deserve punishment for our willful willful departure from God's will and his laws, which is why he said this to Adam and Eve. If you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That's the punishment. You, you, you break God's law, there's the consequences. And so <clears throat> we get to other places like Romans, and we read stuff like the wages of sin is death. So we have these Divine consequences of breaking God's laws. And this, this is bad news, obviously, for those of us who want to do our own thing. But this bad news, I must tell you, paves the way for good news, doesn't it? In fact, until you understand the bad news, the good news makes no sense, which is why we repeat the bad news every single Sunday and remind you of your sin why? To beat you down? Of course not, but to make you run to a Savior who is the only one who can forgive you and bring you the joy that comes with forgiveness. right? This is, this is a wonderful reason to remind you of your sin is because it reminds you at the same time of God's grace in Jesus Christ towards us. We deserve condemnation, but we get mercy. That's enough to live on. Secondly, what is forgiveness of sins? I've just given you a brief description of what sin is. What is forgiveness of sin? And answering that question is, in fact, the good news. It reveals the good news, which is so precious to us. Now listen closely to this. I don't know if you want to write this down. I don't know if it's on the overhead, but let me read it to you. Forgiveness is an act of God whereby the obligation of his punishment is dissolved. Doesn't that sound good to you? It's an act of God whereby the obligation for him to punish us us is dissolved. (laughs) In other words, in God's goodness, he has created a way that he is no longer obligated by his own holiness and his own justice to punish a sinner who rightfully deserves it. He doesn't have to punish anymore. Let me unpack this a bit for you because it's critical to your understanding of God, being filled with the knowledge of God. this This is the front step. All right? Let me unpack this idea of forgiveness here. Forgiveness is not a reversing of a sinful act. Do you hear that? Forgiveness is not a reversing of a sinful act, as if it never happened. It's it's not a divine magic trick. You, You see, you were sinners, but now it's gone. No, that's not what's happening. God is not wiping out a sinful act. God has, in fact, intentionally overlooked a sinful act, for a greater glory. So, forgiveness, God's intent in forgiving us, His people, is not to sweep our sin under the rug, but to reveal a greater glory. Which brings us to the next point. Forgiveness isn't that God decides to change what is sinful. And He goes, I really like you, so I'm going to say that's not sinful anymore. No. That's not happening. Sin isn't a moving target. It never has been. Every sin that it has ever been has always been sinful. And God's law continues to require judgment for transgression. Forgiveness doesn't make sin unsinful. If and when pardon comes, guess what? We remain offenders of the law. Even though you've been pardoned of sin, you are still in the category of offenders. Offenders. Right? Like the bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's true and and good, but maybe you should say Christians are just pardoned sinners. We're pardoned sinners. As it says all over the New Testament, but I like this verse in Hebrews 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah. Thirdly, even after we're pardoned, we remain deserving of God's wrath. And there's a little theological nuance here that I'm not going to get into, uh, other than to say that uh, I want you to think about genuine forgiveness. All right? Does genuine forgiveness require merit? I'll forgive you of what you just did for me, honey, if you do the laundry. That sounds off to me. I don't know. I've never tried that with my wife. But I'm not sure I'd get away with it. What's going on in our relationship with God? I just want you to think about that. Take it home, mull it over, talk to your spouse about it. Does the forgiveness of sin require merit? Okay. So, even after pardon, we remain deserving of God's wrath. The sinful act itself remains in the category of deserved condemnation, doesn't it? Deserved punishment. But Romans chapter 8, verse 1, anybody like that verse? Every Christian likes that verse. Romans 8.1 tells us that we don't receive just condemnation for a specific reason. Here it is. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's grace in the gospel discharges any and all guilt and condemnation, but we cannot think of ourselves as free from guilt and deserving of God's pardon, because we don't. We are not free from guilt. We don't deserve his pardon. It's just that God has absorbed the the consequences of our sin for a greater glory. And I'll get to that in a moment. Fourth, it remains that forgiveness of sin is, is dissolving God's, God's obligation to punish us because of the gospel. God can and does joyfully, enthusiastically forgiz- forgive us because of what we find in the gospel. All right? <clears throat> because of the gospel, fault and guilt remain, but fault and guilt are passed over To highlight this greater glory, I'm going to explain to you in a moment. Here are some ways or some things that I think will be helpful to you. There is an important relationship between fault and guilt, right? Between sin and punishment. Being at fault means punishment's deserved. You're guilty, so you deserve punishment. These two things go together. But there is no punishment without fault. In other words, if you're not at fault, you don't deserve punishment. If if God removes the fault by overlooking that fault because of this greater glory, hint, the perfection of Christ, then the punishment legally disappears. All right, that's the point in the sermon that should make you feel good. All right? The, The legal responsibility of God to punish you for your sin disappears because of the perfection of Christ and the work of Christ on Calvary. The judge cannot defend or condemn, rather, the judge cannot condemn an offender if the penalty of the offense has been paid. The, the judge doesn't say, well, I know Bob took care of your fine, but I really don't like what you did, so I'm going to really lay it on you right now. No. That doesn't happen. <clears throat> Secondly, if another helpful thing, it would be troubling to our understanding of God's mercy if he would in fact punish our sins if they've already been pardoned. Wouldn't it? We would go, hold on. Why am I being punished for this sin if Jesus took it? Right? God absorbs the penalty and offense because of the work of Jesus. Jesus, being God, absorbed the punishment that you and I deserve. He took it. And so Jesus lived that perfect life that God requires of all humanity, and then he paid the penalty of our rebellion by dying in our place just like the innocent animal took the place of the sinner in the Old Testament. So there you have a very brief explanation of sin and the necessity of forgiveness. The second half of verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now let's, let's get into the first point that Paul makes in verse 14, redemption. The nature of redemption. What does redemption mean and why is it important? Well, first of all, redemption presupposes captivity and bondage, right? If you weren't a captive, if you weren't in bondage to something or someone, you wouldn't need to be redeemed. But it's obvious as you read through the New Testament that redemption is is a positive thing and available to all who put their trust and faith in Christ Jesus, right? So redemption presupposes that you got a problem, a bondage problem, a captivity problem. Redemption is has the idea of purchasing back, right? We can understand redemption a bit if we think of it uh, in terms of pawn shop activity or negotiations. If you redeem something that you sold to a pawn shop, you have to pay a ransom price, right? It's attached to the value of the product. The fact is that because we were born in sin and we committed sin ourselves, In our pre-Christ selves, we belong to the domain of darkness, verse 13, right? We belong to the company of rebels. That's our group, dark rebels. That's where we were. We were under the authority of the devil. Before Jesus saves us, we were slaves to sin. That's bondage. In Titus chapter 3, Paul said this, that we were slaves To various passions and pleasures. Now, it seems odd to us in our day to be told that we are slaves to pleasures. Uh, You might say, well, sign me up, all right? I like pleasures. I I don't think I'm required to stay there in that pleasurable situation. Um, I kind of like pleasures. Well, Paul views it as slavery slavery to passions and pleasures jesus said this about the same thing truly to uh, john 8 34 truly truly i say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin so evidently jesus and paul thought that slavery in fact is a problem for those of us who don't know jesus our society would argue that they're not enslaved by anything but are doing only what they want to do. How can you say I'm a slave to anything when every day, all day, I do just what I want? What are you talking about? Um, They say that being free is doing whatever you want and part of what it means to have a good life, quote unquote. So if we define a good life by doing what we want versus what we should, then we might have a decent definition but that is not the definition of a good life, is it? Doing what we want. In fact, <clears throat> you remember the last funeral you went to? Uh, and we hear that so-and-so was a good person. Why were they a good person? Because they did what they want or because they did what they should? It's always the second, isn't it? This person was so such a good person. They lived such a good life because they did all these difficult things. And so, this good life, even if we're honest with ourselves, outside of the the biblical discussion, we would agree, as secular individuals even, that there is something different about the good life that we all acknowledge as good, and the good life that is selfish, right? Yeah. So, let's think about this from a biblical perspective now. The Bible describes what a good and pleasing life is in quite a few places. Let me read for you, um, read for you Micah 6.8. That gives you God's definition of a good life. <clears throat> he has told you, O man, what is good or what is the good life? He's told you what the good life is. Here it is. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, that's difficult. To love kindness, that's difficult. And to walk humbly with your God, that's impossible. So we have the good life described all throughout Scripture, but this is a succinct definition. You are to do justice, love kindness, and be humble before God. That's the good life. The reality is that doing whatever you want isn't actually good or freedom. When we do what our sinful lusts desire, because those desires are so overpowering, it is not freedom to do what you want. It's slavery. Paul was right. And Jesus said the same thing. When you're doing whatever, you, whatever your passions and pleasures desire, you are actually slaves to that. You're not free. Anyone who has struggled with a besetting sin knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you have a besetting sin, you know what slavery means, don't you? Yeah. We cannot not sin before we come to Christ. We are slaves to sin. We are in captivity. We are in the domain of darkness. That's the thing God saves us out of. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, Paul writes that before we come to Christ, we are captives to Satan, bound by him to do his will. And nobody outside of Christ would define it that way. No, I'm just doing what I want. No, you're not. You're doing what he wants. So outside of Christ, we are at the mercy of our spiritual enslavement. (coughs) Keep your finger in Colossians chapter 1, if you would, and turn over with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to say a few things about this chapter and chapter 7. These two chapters are really Paul's magnum opus on spiritual slavery versus spiritual freedom. His question in chapter 6, verse 21 is a question about the quality of life. and helps you understand the difference between freedom and slavery. So look at verse 21 in Romans 6. He asked a question, and that's pretty revealing. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit? In other words, how good was that life? The things you used to do, the, the way you used to think, before you came to Christ, how was that going for you? Is his question. Paul's argument here in in chapter 6 of Romans is that since everyone is a slave to something, either God and righteousness or self and unrighteousness, which one would you prefer to be enslaved to? Which one has produced a better way of life? Consider the fruit of each way of life. He says... In verse 21 again, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things was death. It wasn't such a great life after all, was it? Being free to do whatever you wanted. Turned out that that particular life includes things like purposelessness. Anxiety, broken relationships, and not to mention being under the weight of the wrath of God, anticipating when it will strike, when the hammer will drop. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he calls our pre-Christ condition children of wrath. (laughs) How's that for a loaded gun pointing pointing at your head? See, we belong to the kingdom of darkness before we know Christ. We are in that dark domain that Paul says God has removed us from when we come to faith in Christ. We're serving the devil, serving his purposes. You are, in fact, are not free Because of our sin and rebellion against God and his will, we are under his judgment and wrath, and the only escape is by way of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. The gospel explains all of this in precise and wonderful detail throughout all of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, yes, in the Old Testament. So redemption assumes or presupposes some kind of captivity, Secondly, redemption requires a price to be paid. (coughs) Nothing can satisfy the ransom price except that which is set by God. Remember, he makes the rules. It's his universe. He makes the rules. So he gets to set the ransom price. And he said this very clearly. No amount of prayer, fasting, good works can merit or earn the ransom price. Our redemption Can only come with a certain payment, a certain ransom. Otherwise, we remain in spiritual captivity. So the purchase price was set by God, paid to God, not paid to Satan, which is a common uh, bad teaching. Our rebellion and sin was not against Satan, but against God. He is the one offended. Only God can judge, only God can condemn, only God can pardon. And so once God is satisfied with the redemption price, Satan, who is this earthly jailer, the one who rules the domain of darkness, the one who keeps us in captivity, he is required to release us from his captivity once the ransom price has been paid. We are free. So once God and his law is satisfied, Satan no longer has any authority over us. You don't have to do what he says. You don't have to submit to his urgings to sin. You're free from that. That's why Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 13, you can flip back there if you want, now we're out of Romans, that we have been delivered from that domain. He no longer has authority over us. So we need to think of redemption, or ransom, as a buying back from captivity. We are in captivity, a purchase price, a ransom price is offered, and we are bought out of that darkness by God. So why does God require a ransom or redemption price? Why? Why not just be able to, because he's God, wave his hand and say, it's okay. And it's because of this, he's holy. He's perfect, and he's just. And to wave his hand and say, oh, don't worry about it, is not holy or just, is it? No. So in order for God to maintain his holiness, maintain his justice and truthfulness, he cannot just wave his hand. There has to be a price paid, a redemption, a ransom paid. It's not just looking the other way. The price was set by God, paid by God, and paid to God. And so he cannot act unjustly and pardon sin with a wink. Doesn't work. He would cease to be God the moment that he did that. There must be an actual and sufficient satisfaction. And the satisfaction that we're talking about, the ransom price, must be at least equivalent to the offense made. So the ransom price must be at least equivalent to the offense made. The offense is made by you and me, right? And so it has to be of equal value to the infinite value of that offense. And there's only one thing in heaven and earth, and I will say it this way, only one person in heaven and earth who possesses such infinite value, right? which is why Peter called it the precious blood of Christ. Listen to Romans 3, 25 through 26. This is Paul speaking, the Holy Spirit answering this question. Whom, that is speaking of Jesus Christ, that's the whom, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, Propitiation is just a fancy theological word for satisfaction. All right? So, let me read it in the vernacular. Whom God put forward as a a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. The death of Christ is a full satisfaction of God's infinite standard and requirement. To accomplish redemption. To get you out of the domain of darkness, to redeem you out of that. Jesus Christ is the only one sufficient to accomplish that, which is our next point. He's the only one qualified to cover the ransom price. <clears throat> so, let me finish Romans three twenty-five and 26. Whom God put forward as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show... God's righteousness, remember, he couldn't be unholy. He, he couldn't lack justice. This, this satisfaction, this work of Christ um, was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance that he had passed over sins. The reason he passed over sins is because of this greater glory. What's the greater glory? The blood of Christ for undeserving sinners. <laughs> it was to show his Righteousness. The death of Christ, the the propitiation, satisfaction that came with the death of Christ showed that God was just. He wasn't unjust. He was just and the justifier. So in justifying you, it wasn't a wink at sin. It was a taking out of all necessary requirements on the person of Jesus Christ and spilling his blood so that God could justly forgive you. Which I said leads to this. Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to cover such a thing. Can you think of a more qualified individual? In the Old Testament, there was all these pictures that pointed to Christ. The the sacrifice of the bulls and goats and birds and everything else. To demonstrate this is what it's going to look like. An innocent animal with, with unstained blood will pay the penalty of your sin. Old Testament story, we get to the New Testament and John the Baptist introducing Jesus says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the only one qualified to cover such a ransom price. He's the only God-man to ever exist, that's required, why? Why did Jesus have to be man? He had to be man to be able to stand in our place, to represent us legitimately. He must be man in order to fulfill the requirements of God's law, which one was to pay the legal penalty for sin. God's not going to die if he's not a man, right? He needed to be a man to die. Hence, the incarnation. So he must be a man to stand in our place, to represent it. He must be a man to fulfill the requirement of death because of our sin, and he needed to be a man to accomplish all things necessary. He needed to walk the human walk, the path of a human, to demonstrate this perfection that God requires. But that brings in the necessity of divine nature. How many humans has, have proven that none of us are capable of walking the perfect life? I think of the numbers in the billions so far. There's only one. That is proven to be qualified to be our Redeemer, to pay the ransom price, the stiff ransom price required of God, to live the perfect life that's required of each of us. That's the God man, Jesus Christ. He, this Redeemer of ours, this Mediator, must be God to accomplish the perfect sinlessness. I'll read the whole passage to you that I referenced earlier, uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Adam and Eve, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, not that cheap stuff, but with the precious blood of Christ, the infinite valued blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, next all the requirements of the law must be fulfilled to secure our redemption. Jesus had to fulfill them all. Everything that was required of a savior, he had to fulfill. All the Old Testament types had to be fulfilled in him. Perfection, shedding of blood, etc. Hebrews 9.22, sin is not forgiven unless blood is shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9.22. So Jesus, the son of God, demonstrated perfect, sinless obedience to God his Father to accomplish this for us. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Whose disobedience was that? Who was that? Adam. Right. So by Adam's sin, we are all disobedient. We are all made sinners because our first father is a sinner. So, or just so, or Likewise, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous or perfect. And who was that man? The second Adam. Jesus. You see what's going on here, right? What a passage. Now we have the result of our redemption. It's freedom, isn't it? We've been removed. We've been redeemed from that dark place. That that domain where, where Satan rules and sin is prevalent. We've been removed from that and placed into a kingdom of his son. That ransom price has been paid. The captives have been released. Have you been released from that domain, friend? The freedom purchased by Jesus Christ is not, of course, a freedom from the necessity to obey God's law, which some people teach. You know, we Christians don't need to worry about the law anymore, baloney. It remains God's law. It's just that we're not judged by that law anymore. <laughs> Jesus took the judgment for us, right? But we remain, we remain obligated to obey God's law for sure. We're just freed from, from the require moment, from the, from the not the requirements, so the, the attempts of using that law to gain God's favor and approval. No friends we're free from that We're free from his wrath We're free to grow in a knowledge of God Free to fulfill uh, the will of God In every area of our lives we're free We're out of prison And what's the condition of this What's, what's required of you <coughs> Anything Well Does this sound good to you for starters Is, is redemption something that's Of interest? Well, the blessing of redemption is conditioned on one thing embracing the Redeemer. The the condition of redemption is embracing the Redeemer, being united to Him. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've embraced Him, He is your Lord, He is your Savior. Listen to Acts 26. 18 This is Paul giving testimony to what Jesus told him on the road to Damascus. Okay? So Paul is reminding his audience of what Jesus told him and it's recorded here in Acts 26. Jesus said to Paul that you're going to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Listen, So that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. You're moved from the domain of darkness to the domain of his dear son where you receive the forgiveness of sin. You're set free. So it's only after this transferal from one domain to the next that our sins are forgiven. That's the sequence laid out in Colossians chapter 1. Redemption, you're moved from here to there, and in the process, you're forgiven. Which brings us to the relationship between redemption and forgiveness. I'm gonna say this quickly. Forgiveness, first point, forgiveness is the fruit of redemption, second point, it's the primary fruit of redemption. We could talk a while about that, but let me just say this. There's a lot of benefits for redemption, right? Or of redemption. Think of all the, the, the benefits you're enjoying because you've been redeemed, because you've been taken out of a domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his dear son. Think about your, the benefits. They're everywhere, aren't they? Here's the one that must be at the top of the list, the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, you're no longer liable. You will never stand judgment for your sin. You'll not be reminded of them. Remember that time you did that? No. He throws them into the deepest sea. Redemption's primary (laughs) fruit, primary blessing is forgiveness. I don't know about you, but my day goes way better knowing that I'm forgiven. God's wrath has been appeased. He forgives all my sins. Every one in my past, and half of which I don't remember. All of them in my future. I have no idea what they're going to be. But because of the work of Christ, the infinite value of his blood... I'm forgiven on both sides. And the application of this redemptive work is one of the blessings, of course, which is what? Being sanctified, being transformed into the image of my Redeemer. So, friends, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? We have no reason to want to pursue a deeper knowledge of God. We've been provided everything we need for a deeper knowledge of God the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of His Word, the fellowship of the saints, everything that we need. So, as we enter now to the time of the Lord's Supper, I want you to come, those of you who are in Christ, I want you to come with a sense of overwhelming joy in all that God has done for you in Christ. I know that <clears throat> you're tempted to, to, at least if you're like me, to process areas of my life that may not be right, and that's a good thing. But I'm asking you this morning to focus your attention on The the blessings and benefits of redemption, primarily the forgiveness of your sins. And the elements uh, are, you know, pretty well suited to remind us of that, aren't they? The bread, the little piece of bread, um, represents the broken body of Christ, right? So it reminds you of the work of God for you on Calvary. His spilt blood, the precious blood of Christ that redeemed you from one domain to the kingdom of his Son. These things should at least make a 40-foot walk happy, right? <laughs> you can go ahead and be depressed on the way back out, but for 40 feet, come joyfully into the presence of of the table and the Savior who provided it. I'm gonna um, ask you to stand with me and we're gonna read the Nicene Creed. That's in your bulletin and I think it's on the overhead also. But I'm gonna ask that you stand with me and we're gonna read it and then I'm gonna read the words of institution from uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and Then I'll pray, and while I'm praying, if those helping me with the Lord's Supper would come forward, that would be wonderful. So let's read this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the father through him all things were made for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven he became incarnate by the holy spirit the virgin mary and was made human he was crucified for us under pontius pilate he suffered and was bruised third day rose again according to the scriptures He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead, to life in the world to come, amen. Let me read for you from 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution. Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we now come into your presence once again, acknowledging our great need, and with that great need, an overwhelming thanksgiving and praise for what you've accomplished for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, what a, what a redeemer. What a forgiver. I thank you for the, the glorious work on Calvary that you accomplished to purchase our redemption, to make it possible to live now freely in the presence of a holy God without fear with complete confidence because of what you've done and granted to us by faith. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray now for those in this room that, that they would come forward rejoicing in these things, that they would leave any feelings of guilt or discouragement behind and they would, they would run to the front and be satisfied with these glorious elements that remind us of the infinite, valuable work of our Savior. Bless each now as they come, and I pray this in your name. Amen.